guys, and welcome back to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast dedicated to talking about the things no one wants to talk about in real life. I'm Christina, and I am back from the dead. It has been three months since I last published an episode. Uh, A lot of shit has gone down in the world. A lot of shit has gone down in my personal life. And I don't think I need to give you guys an explanation about why I haven't been active because I can imagine everyone's in the same boat. We're all depressed. We're all tired. Things are looking pretty bleak. But that's the reason I'm coming back ultimately because I think we need platforms like this more than ever. We need a place where we can express ourselves and how shitty we feel or how angry we feel. And honestly, I have missed this a lot. Uh, My own mental health has not been the greatest. The last time I recorded, as some of you may know, I was in Virginia with my family and we were all quarantined together. So as you can imagine, with six people under one roof for six weeks, things got a little bit stressful. (laughs) Uh, Don't get me wrong, I love my family, but it was really good for me to leave when I did. So I'm back home in Seattle now. I am back to working part-time at my job while still receiving some unemployment benefits. Uh, And that's a whole episode on its own. But with all the doom and gloom going on in the world, I did want to share some positive things that have happened with me. I celebrated my one-year anniversary of being dry from alcohol. Uh, It's the longest I've been sober since I started drinking, really. Last year was probably the worst year I've ever had and the closest I've come to suicide. And I know alcohol was a direct factor. So I'm sure that I'll address it in a future episode, but all I can say now is that I'm really proud of myself and the future is looking a lot brighter I got a quarantine kitten. His name is Little Fang, and he's adorable. I actually made an Instagram account because, uh, of course, I did. Uh, But you can follow it at Ruby and Little Fang on Instagram if you are so inclined. Uh, I just post pictures of my cats all day long, and it makes me really happy, and hopefully it'll make you really happy too. So that happened. Uh, Let's see. What else? Oh. Another thing that happened with me, I got a boyfriend after being single for two years. I am in a relationship with a man and he's amazing and he has a cat and he is a mental health advocate and a writer and it's pretty great. (laughs) It's so weird to talk about because it's still pretty new, but uh, so far things are going really well. How we met was we were both on Bumble pretty bored and lonely and we started talking about cats as one does and that's pretty much it we waited until the official lockdown had lifted to see each other in person but since then we've been spending pretty much every weekend together and it's great one thing that's really important for me this time around is to be upfront about my mental health problems and not hide anything and so that's definitely been a learning curve but uh he's very supportive without enabling me And I have been doing my part to try to own my shit and take care of it and not rely on him to do that. 
but yeah, that's about it as far as updates with me. Um, like I said earlier, I feel like I don't really need to explain why I haven't been recording. I'm just as overwhelmed and depressed as everyone else is right now, and I think it's good to just focus on what we can do and how we can keep ourselves alive and healthy-ish. <laughs> Today, you're going to hear the episode I recorded back in April with Dr. Rachel Zoffness. She is a pain and health psychologist in California. She's the author of two books about chronic pain management. She writes a Psychology Today column called Pain Explained. But the article that brought her to me was one that she published after COVID had hit. It's called Anxiety Contagion, Tips for Relief. And we talk about it in the episode. She gives all her tips for dealing with the current world situations. We did record back in April before the Black Lives Matter protests and before we knew how long that the quarantine would last. So the world has definitely changed, but a lot of the advice that she gives and the stuff we talk about is definitely still applicable. Uh, I would say even more applicable now. So please let me know what you think. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear some more news and updates about the podcast. Until then, I hope you guys enjoy. So thank you so much for doing this. I know you're a busy woman and I appreciate you oh, taking the totally time. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Totally. Yeah. So right off the top, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. My name is Rachel Zafnis. I'm a pain and health psychologist and an assistant clinical professor at UCSF where I teach pain education to medical residents. And I am a real nerd when it comes to pain and health. So I've written a couple of books, including a pain management workbook that's coming up. And I write a column in psychology today called Pain Explained. Now, I didn't know it was a whole column. I know you recently um, published that article that I will, I'll definitely link it in the description to this. So originally, the column was intended to be about pain, which is a thing that 100% of humans experience but very few of us understand, in part, by the way, because it's not taught in 96% of med schools in the United States have zero pain education. So, so yeah, it's, it's this ubiquitous thing that we all experience that's mismanaged and mistreated, as we all know. And we have this opioid epidemic. And, right. um, but I'm also a health psychologist, so that means, especially now during a public health crisis, that probably like most people, my brain is really distracted and it's hard for me to focus just on pain, so I've been thinking a lot about health. And the article you're referring to in my Psychology Today column, I mostly write about pain education, but I went off on a tangent and wrote about anxiety contagion because we're all feeling it. How would you define anxiety contagion? What a good question. So a lot of people are talking about how contagious the virus is, right? What, what we don't think about a lot of the time is how contagious emotions are. Emotions are just as contagious as any virus. So what studies show is even in children, for example, if you're on the playground and you see a child running and the child trips and falls, the first thing she'll do is look at her parent's face. And if her mom looks scared and startled and panicky, the child will start to cry. If the parent looks calm and reassuring and says, oh, no, you're good. Don't worry. Just get up. Everything's going to be okay. 
the child will feel a sense of calm and reassurance and nine times out of 10 will get up and continue playing. So emotions are contagious. That's a thing that we've known for forever. And it's the thing that underlies, you know, you've heard of these like terrible stampedes in movie theaters where people get trampled. That's anxiety contagion. So if one person is anxious, it's actually adaptive and functional for human beings to see that anxiety and learn from it and for our brains to click us into anxious mode also because what if there's an emergency? What if we all need to run? What if that person's panicking because there's something dangerous? So, you know, it's adaptive for us to catch that emotion. However, in a situation like this where there's a pandemic and everybody is panicking, it's actually really maladaptive. Did I do a good job of explaining what anxiety contagion is? You did an amazing job. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I I kind of... Like, I'd never heard that term before reading your article. Like you said, it's something that we have evolved to use to our benefit, but also it can cause a lot of harm, particularly with the spread of misinformation, which I think that's one of the points that you listed in your article. I'm going out of order. Do you want to kind of summarize your article for those who haven't read it? Sure, I'd be happy to. Psychology Today, for folks that don't know what it is, it's uh, in print, but also online magazine. um, And it covers a lot of common and popular issues around health and particularly mental health because it is uh, psychology focused. And the Anxiety Contagion article, it's called Anxiety Contagion Tips for Relief. Um, And to back up, the reason that I wrote it was because I was seeing in friends and family this terrible crippling panic that was rendering people unable to function. And and if you're online or on social media, you'll see that too. Like totally. People are melting down, like all of us. I mean, and I don't what I really want to make sure to do is to normalize this experience and not stigmatize it because of course all of us are anxious. There's a pandemic. It's killing people. Like you're supposed yeah. to be anxious. And that's by the way, not mental illness. That is what we call a normal response to an abnormal situation. This is completely abnormal, this thing we're we're all going through right now. Mm -hmm. So if you're anxious and panicking and depressed, that's actually, that does not mean you're mentally ill. And I just want to make sure to say that. And of course, if you have underlying stuff going on, it's going to exacerbate it. That again is totally expected and anticipated and normal. What I was seeing in friends and family and online and on the news is this like explosion of panic. Like, of course, you know, people are wearing gloves and masks, and that makes it even scarier. I live on this street where there's a grocery store and a pharmacy. So, I, you know, all day, every day, I was seeing people line up with masks and the gloves up to their elbows and, like, yeah. panicking their faces and, and backing away from each other. Like, everyone's looking at everyone suspiciously like they're a vector, like they're going to get the disease or give you the disease. And, and another thing that I was noticing is that you know, I, I like to run and I would go for runs and keep my distance from people, but people do not smile and make eye contact or even say hi to me when, when and I'm very social <laughs> and, and you can just feel the fear. It's like leaking out of everybody. So, and I think that's part of the anxiety contagion is like the more abnormal things become, the more panicky people feel. We are humans. We are creatures of habit. We like routine. Routines make us feel safe. And when even the most basic social rules are being violated, like no one smiles at you when you smile at them, that is really dysregulating. It makes you feel like everything has gone wonky. And of course it has. Right. 
but there are things that we can do. So that's why I wrote the article. I wanted to explain what anxiety contagion was. I wanted to normalize this panicky experience that everybody is having right now. And then I wanted to offer some tools for relief because I think it's legitimately really scary to be in this situation where even our leaders can't give us good answers about what's happening and when it's going to end. So it's a situation where we're all sort of like, okay, well, we need tools and we need to take matters into our own hands. And what can we do to navigate this totally unchartered territory? What would you say is like a, a normal amount of anxiety to be having right now? Like if that's even a thing? Because there's that fine line between, you know, panic and being aware, you know. Yes. So I always have struggled my whole life with the word normal. I just like, I've never known what that means. But I yeah. totally un- I totally understand your question. I think my answer is, it depends, which is such an annoying answer. But everybody has their own personal baseline, if you know what I mean by right. that. Like, we're, we're all operating just on your regular average day without a pandemic. <laughs> we're, we're all operating on different levels of our, our average levels of stress and anxiety. And some people are, generally speaking, more anxious and more stressed out than other people. So that said, that said, I 100% anticipate that everybody is experiencing a spike in anxiety. And there is a level at which, I mean, I humbly submit, and I cannot prove this, that probably the majority of human beings right now have an unhealthy level of stress and anxiety, given the abnormal situation we're all in. And yeah, the fear, like, be weird if they didn't. It, like, that's exactly my point. It's exactly, it would be weird if they didn't. And we're in an abnormal situation. And so we're all feeling triggered. So I guess I the guess, word normal is inappropriate. I guess a healthy amount is what I meant right. to say. Total, no, totally. Uh, but all the words are totally correct. Healthy is great. Normal is great. And and the answer is, honestly, I do think everybody's anxiety is spiking right now. And I think the unhealthy level of anxiety is when you're noticing it's impairing your ability to function. So, um, or it's affecting you somatically or physically in a way that's really unpleasant. Like for me, I am a very somatic person. And by that, I mean, I very much feel my emotions in my body. And all humans do, right? The brain is connected to the body 100% of the time. And our our emotions come out in our body 100% of the time, but to different degrees for different people. So for me, when I get really stressed out or anxious, I get stomach aches. Sometimes I get nauseous. Sometimes I get pukey. I mean, it just depends on the degree of stress and anxiety. Um, and I would say that would be a set, like if you're at that level, like I notice, for example, when I go grocery shopping, I usually love grocery shopping. Same. Just to, I love my groceries. But right now, you go to the grocery store and there's this long, ominous line and people in masks and everyone looks miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you go into the grocery store and things are missing, like bottled water is missing and like, Toilet paper. <laughs> you can't get toilet paper and your favorite pasta is gone and there's no rice, you know? Yeah. And what that does is it clicks your brain into what we call deprivation mode. And deprivation mode is something we've all experienced if we've ever gone on a diet. If you've ever gone on a diet and you stop eating a thing, it becomes the thing you desperately, desperately want and you feel deprived, you know, and you miss it. So when you walk into a grocery store and you're you see the things that are missing. It also cues to your brain, of course, that something is wrong. They're out of a thing. And it makes you feel panicky. Like, well, what if I need that? What if I need rice? There isn't any. And you go down that spiral. So I notice that when I grocery shop now, my stomach does weird backflips. Like, 
I'm not pukey, I'm okay, but I notice that my stomach is like jumping all around and I feel really like fidgety and agitated and I'm like annoyed at the elderly gentleman who's cutting in front of me, leaning in front of me because I'm like, excuse me, sir, I don't think I have it, but if I do, you're within three inches of my face and that's exactly. So I noticed that in myself. You know, when you ask about healthy levels of anxiety, I literally think, and I, it's very hard to generalize, but I do think that generally speaking, all of us are in a state probably of unhealthy heightened anxiety. And then, of course, there's the extreme. And the extreme is you're having panic attacks, and panic attacks are very somatic or physical. So you have trouble catching your breath, and you feel lightheaded and dizzy. And some people will think that they're having a heart attack because your heart is racing so fast. Some people get very tingly in their hands and their feet or feel numbness in their limbs because what's happening is your blood is rushing to your core and away from your extremities and you know people get diarrhea or they get constipated or they vomit or you know when you're panicking and anxious your functioning is impaired and by that I mean you're not able to do the things you used to be able to do before so it's hard for you to leave the house or it's hard for you to get up off the couch and change out of your pajamas or it's hard for you to engage in social behavior or it's hard for you to do work or think or concentrate I I have more free time than I ever have, but I'm also struggling extra hard to fill that time. And I feel like there's something wrong with me because, you know, I have all the time in the world. Why am I not able to be productive? And it's just a cycle. Totally. And so here's some good news. Um, I don't know you very well, but that (laughs) is not an indicator that there's something wrong with you. Nobody can concentrate right now. And my analogy is like, if you've ever had an old computer and it had like lots of programs running in the background and the fan was working really hard and you could feel it overheating and then you try and get it to like open a website or you try and open a browser and it's going really, really slow and it just crashes. Our brains right now have so many programs running in the background that when you try and ask it to do work, it's like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to process the fact that there's a pandemic and people are dying and I can't do anything and, you know, I may not have enough gloves. And like, what if my food supply is threatened? You know, your brain is like, and how's my grandma? (laughs) And how's my grandma? Totally. And how are my friends? And how's my family? And my, all those friends I have who are physicians on the front line. Like, oh yeah. But we all have all those programs literally running in the background. So you can sit down and be like, I'm in a knit or read a book or, you know, I had a book deadline last week and I emailed my publishers and I was like, yeah, you guys, no way. Like, I can't. Are you kidding? Like, I sit down to edit the book and my brain is like, but what about all the things that are happening? Exactly. Well, to be fair, everyone is in the same boat right now. That's the thing. This this is kind of uh, leveling the field. There is a lot of panic and anxiety, yes, but I think there's also heightened empathy in some cases. Like, we are all going through exactly the same thing. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, how old you are, you know, everyone is in the same boat. So that's that's a small comfort, at least. I actually really love that perspective, and I agree with you 100% that there. I do think there is heightened empathy and a, like a collective sense of like getting each other's backs. Like yeah. my neighborhood, my neighborhood has a listserv, and people have been sending out messages like, if anyone on the street is elderly and scared to go to the grocery store, let us know. We'll buy supplies for you. If anyone is isolated and needs to talk, let's have a Zoom neighborhood dinner. You know, so it's just a sense of. You're right. Like heightened That's empathy. That's so lovely. Isn't it so lovely? Yeah. A lot of both right now. A For lot sure. Of the, yeah. Well, let's um, let's backtrack a little bit because you, you kind of said what you do, uh, but I want to get to know you a little more. So uh, what's your history with mental health and what led you to do what you do? 
I am originally from New York. I like to call myself a reformed New Yorker. I live in California now. I've been here for many, many years. I've always been interested in health. I've always been interested in the brain in particular. I was a neuroscience nerd at Brown University undergrad. And I also was always interested in human behavior and psychology. Um, Well, the two go hand in hand. It's true. The two go hand, blessings on your soul. The two go hand in hand. But for whatever reason, in Western culture, you either seem to study medicine or you study psychology. I mean, it's very rare. There's either, you're either studying behavioral processes or you're studying, you know, the physical body. And there's this divide, this brain body divide that we have in Western culture where we don't talk very much about the overlay and how emotions affect the body and how trauma affects pain. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap. So, um, so I did my undergraduate training and then I did a master's in psychology at Columbia and I was trying to figure out how to do all the things I wanted to do. And here's a list of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to study neuroscience and biology and psychology, and I wanted to work with kids, and I wanted to teach, and I wanted to write. I wanted to do all of these things all at the same time, and I couldn't figure (laughs) out how to do it. (laughs) So I was a science teacher at the Bronx Zoo. That was my first job out of college. Oh, wow. It was phenomenal. It was like me and the animals and these precocious eight-year-olds who were amateur herpetologists who I still am friends with, and I love them. But that wasn't – it didn't quite scratch the itch. And then I wrote for a magazine in New York City called Natural History Magazine. And it was right out of the American Museum of Natural History on the Upper West Side. It's one of my favorite places on planet Earth. But it was just me writing nerdy science stuff. And that didn't quite scratch the itch either. So after I got my master's degree, I decided to go work at the NYU Child Study Center, which was and still is affiliated with NYU. And they did a lot of studies on anxiety. And it was specifically geared toward kids. And I really love working with kids. And I was a research assistant there. And that was so fascinating. And I decided while I was there that I was going to apply to PhD programs and see if I could get my PhD in psychology. So I applied to a joint doctoral program. It was UCSD and SDSU. It was psychology, but also you could take psychiatry classes with medical students. And I really wanted both. Um, Um, I know the difference, but can you summarize it quickly for those who might not? The difference Psychiatry and psychology. Oh, sorry. Yes. Thank you for asking me. So psychology is the study of human behavior. And for that, to study psychology, you can go to any therapy-based program. So you can get an MSW, social work degree. You can get an MFT in California. That's marriage and family. You can get a PsyD or you can get a PhD. And all of those are um, training in psychology and human behavior. Or you can go the medical route. You can go to medical school and get an MD and study psychiatry. And that's very medication heavy. It is neuroscience, but it also is pharmacology. So it's pills and That's what you need to prescribe medication to someone. Correct. That is correct. In order to prescribe pills, you need to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist. And I did not want to do that. Very decidedly, I wanted to help people, but not by writing a prescription on a prescription pad. Not that that is a bad thing. It is not a bad thing. It just was what I wanted to do. I wanted more interactive, um, you know, treatment. Yeah, you wanted to get into their heads. A hundred percent. Totally. So... I got my PhD and I still wasn't sure how to bridge all of these things, but I did study the phenomenon of pain. And I studied that as an undergrad because I was always scared of pain. Pain scared me as it scares most human beings. Was there anything in particular that cemented that fear? 
I don't think I have a, like one concrete thing that cemented that fear. I actually just think it's like normative for animals to be afraid of pain. You know, I was a kid who had a lot of anxiety and I had stomach aches all the time and I didn't know what the stomach aches were. It wasn't actually until I was an adult and went down this rabbit hole of pain that I understood what was happening to me as a kid. But I had all the tests and all the procedures and all the things and I was on all these medications for stomach aches. And at the end of the day, I didn't have a condition. You know, they ruled out everything. And they still didn't know why I was That's having so stomach That's so frustrating. Aches. It's also so common. What I've learned is that yeah. headaches and stomach aches are the number one way stress and anxiety manifest in humans. Yeah. That's, that should be something that every physician teaches every child. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not where we are. So I had a pediatric neurologist call me when I was fresh out of my PhD program. And she said, I hear you specialize in CBT. CBT, not CBD. <laughs> CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. CBD is cannabinoids. That's a little bit different. Just a little bit. And she said, you know, there are these research papers coming out in medical journals showing that cognitive behavioral therapy is an effective treatment for chronic pain. She's a pediatric neurologist. And she said, I'm seeing a lot of kids with chronic migraine and chronic headache. And I'm really curious about the CBT stuff. Will you come in and do a presentation for us at UCSF and teach us about the CBT thing? And I said, of course. So I went in. I totally had imposter syndrome. I was like, who do I think I am going to UCSF and giving a talk? And my best friend was like, Zafnis, you have a PhD and three degrees in psychology. Like, you know, you have to own that at some point. I gave this nerdy talk about CBT and she said, that's wonderful. We want you to start seeing our patients. Oh, wow. I I was like, I need to get an office and get some insurance. (laughs) And the first patients she sent me was a kid who's about 16, and he had been in bed for something like four years with chronic pain. And he had chronic migraine, and he had abdominal migraine, and he was vomiting all the time, and he had no friends, and wasn't learning, and was like on a seventh grade education level. And he was heavy and pale and had long, unwashed hair. And I have to tell you, when he came into my office, I was my first thought was like, I don't know why I said yes to this. I'm going to like... Like, how can I, I help know, this person? Totally. Like, he's seen the best doctors in the world at UCSF and Stanford. Like, who do I think I am, you know? Did he have a diagnosis? Like, I know you said chronic pain, but was there anything more specific? Yeah, he had a number of different diagnoses. He had chronic migraine was one. Abdominal migraine was another. He had cyclical vomiting syndrome he had been diagnosed with. He may have also been diagnosed with some diffuse amplified pain syndrome, but I can't remember. But yeah, I definitely had this thought of like, what am I doing? Like I had read all the papers at that point and I, I'm like a really, when I say a nerd, I'm a nerd. I'm like really a nerd. Like I had gotten <laughs> all the books on CBT for pain. I had emailed the authors of the journal articles to ask them what CBT protocol they were using with their patients. You know, and I read through everything and I made sure I knew it cold, but I still had this feeling of like, do I know how to do it? Do I know what I'm doing? And I asked him when I first met him, he seemed so depressed by the way. He was like hunched over and curled in a ball and his affect, his face, I mean, he just looked like he had completely given up on life. And so that was the first question I asked him, have you given up? And he was like, absolutely. Like I've seen every doctor there is. I've been on 40 medications, 40 medications, 16. And he's like, this is going to last forever. Nobody can help me. And so I lied. I lied. I know it's very controversial. I lied. (laughs) I said, I can help you, but you have to do everything I say. And and the reason, by the way, the reason I lied is because I knew that if he didn't believe in me, he wouldn't even try, and then I would have nothing. I needed him to believe me. So we started doing cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. And part of that is pain education, which is like learning about how pain works in the brain. And part of that is addressing and 
acknowledging that your emotions are impacting your pain and your pain is impacting your emotions. Like, so when you feel pain, you get anxious and depressed normally and naturally. And when you feel anxious and depressed, pain feels worse. And then anxiety and depression get worse. So that's like a cycle that people get stuck in a lot. And then, you know, we slowly started working on this pain. And and within three months, there was this very dramatic difference. When I say dramatic, I mean, at the end of three months, he was walking outside a mile a day. He had gone to get a haircut. He had reconnected with some of his social group and he had gotten a tutor and he was starting to catch up with school. And by the way, he's better. Oh yeah. No, the most remarkable transformation I've ever seen in a human being was my first chronic pain patient for sure. And he's like at college and he's the captain of his ultimate Frisbee team and he is rocking at life. And he still has episodes of pain, by the way. And he still has episodes of anxiety and depression, but he knows how to manage all the things. It will never knock him down ever again. No way. So what you did with him basically was you educated him on how pain works in the brain. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection between CBT and pain? Because I'm really curious. Yes. So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's an effective treatment not only for chronic pain, but also anxiety and depression and trauma and family dysfunction, which of course are all involved in chronic pain. But it's an evidence-based treatment for a lot of things. The essence of CBT is this. This nice man who developed CBT said, I think that how we think affects how we feel emotionally, affects how we feel physically, affects our behaviors or how we act, round and round in a circle, each affecting the other all the time. And he said, people tend to get stuck in these cycles or these traps where they think they get into a rut. They have like thinking traps and they think the same things over and over. So the kid I was telling you about, let's call him Jason. That's not his name, but we're going to call him Jason. The thing that he thought all the time was, I'm broken, I'll never get better. That was like one of his very common, and we all have thoughts similar to that all the time. And he noticed that when he thought that thought, it made him feel horrible. It made him feel discouraged and hopeless and terrified and angry and resentful and fearful of the future. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You got it, girl. That's exactly what that is. So the thought triggered those negative emotions. And what we noticed together was that those negative emotions, the more panicky and depressed and horrible he felt, the worse his body felt, of course, because brain and body are always connected. So he would have pain spikes and he would vomit and he would have migraines when he thought those thoughts and felt those negative emotions. And then again, the the last part of the puzzle is behavior or how you act as a result of thoughts and feelings. And so what he noticed was that when he thought those thoughts and felt those negative emotions and felt those somatic feelings in his body, that he would then isolate and curl away from the world and cave onto his couch and watch days and days of TV or just read books. And he would stop exercising and he would stop seeing friends and he would stop going outside and he would stop doing his homework in part because he couldn't. And in part, he just lost all motivation and hope. And then the cycle spins back around in CBT, right? So how you behave or the decisions you make then affect how you think because then you're like, look at me, I'm sitting in my house, I have no friends, I have no life, I have no future, I'm never going to get into college. You I'm know, broken. I'm broken. And the cycle just keeps spinning around. Once you identify the cycle, the whole goal in CBT is to change all the things. And you can kick that cycle down in a million different ways. You can go after the thoughts, you can go after the emotions and how you're taking care of them, you can go after your body and change how you're feeling by doing lots of different things, and you can change your behaviors. So that's something I happen to love about CBT is there's like no one prescription for how you're supposed to do it. It's like different for different people. And you can go after all those different pieces in different ways. No, his case seems really intimidating. I know it's important to start small in many cases. How did you start small with him? Like, how did you decide what to tackle first? 
for me, the education piece is number one. If you don't teach people about their emotions, if, about what's happening with their bodies and about anxiety and depression and how it affects their bodies, you're, you're never going to get treatment buy-in. You have to understand the thing before you can actually work on the thing, right? Yeah. So a lot of education, so just teaching him about this cycle we just talked about and how pain works in the brain and how emotions affect the body and also what CBT is for pain and the things that we were going to do together to help change his pain. So that was part one. Part two, in his case, was changing behavior. That was the first thing we went for, actually, because he had become really isolated. And obviously, that's really unhealthy for any human being, which is part of the reason I'm so worried about what's happening to the world right now. Yeah. So step one for him was getting him to stand outside on his porch. So each week, we had one behavioral goal. And by behavior, I just mean a thing you're doing or not doing. Something so, measurable. You got it. Yeah. Exactly. We'd have him stand outside on his porch and we would count. The first week, it was like 10 seconds, letting people see him being in the sun. And it was really hard for him. He had developed what is called agoraphobia. I don't know if you've heard of agoraphobia. It's just fear of open spaces. And it manifests in humans. Like a lot of people become homebound and isolated because going out into the world feels paralyzingly scary. So seeing people, having people see you, just being out there in the world just feels really overwhelming and anxiety provoking. So part, that was part of the reason he was inside. So standing outside on the patio and having people see him was very scary. So he had pretty serious pain symptoms at first. His anxiety would spike. His breathing would get shallow and rapid. He'd get lightheaded and dizzy. He would feel his stomach lurch. He would go back inside. We did that for a week at the end of seven days. It had dimmed to a dull roar, and he it was a lot better than it had been. And week two, we had him walk to the corner mailbox nice. and mail, mail a letter. Yeah, we roped his parents in. They wrote letters to people. <laughs> walk to the corner mailbox. Very scary, but by, at the end of seven days, so much better. Week three, I think we had him walk to the dog park with his dog. Oh, animals are great. I am a huge believer in fuzz therapy. Totally. Yes, I love that fuzz therapy. Yeah. And then week four, this is like about a month now, right? He's doing a lot better. He's outside. He's moving his body. People have seen him. He's seen other people. We scripted a conversation, the most basic conversation. This is how it went. This was for the dog park. Cute dog. What kind is it? Can I pet it? And that was it. And then he went home. It was terrifying for him. And he did it. And he was so proud of himself. Yes. And he had, he had the symptoms, by the way. He had all the symptoms. He got nauseous and pukey and headachy and felt pain in his body. And he did the things. Like walking was good for him. Being outside was good for him. Talking to people was good for him. And he noticed a change in his symptoms. It also made him feel brave and self-efficacious. Like he could believe in his own ability to do things. So without my even asking him to, after about a month, he went and got a haircut. He like went to the hairdresser. He was so nervous and he got a haircut. What an know? accomplishment though. Exactly. It's that, like a that, hit like of a drug when, when you do something like that, like that feeling of positive. I mean, it's a dopamine hit. Yeah. It's amazing what that does for you. I was just going to say it literally is a hit. It totally and 100% is a hit. When you do something like that and you feel proud of yourself, your brain gives you a dump of dopamine and also serotonin. So both of those are neurotransmitters that give you feelings of pleasure and reward and happiness. And it, it can be very addictive. And luckily, that's what happened with him. The more he did, the more he felt able to do. We had all these other goals, too, of like reaching out to friends. And he wanted to get back to soccer. So he decided he wanted to pace himself to try and start running again. So what we were really doing was treating all three things simultaneously, the anxiety and the depression and the pain, because they're best friends and they live together all the time. This is not like a strange story. I mean, it happens yeah. to be an extreme story. but So your whole thing is pain. And um, 
You mentioned chronic pain multiple times. My last podcast guest talked about it as well. She's been dealing with chronic pain her whole life. And I think chronic pain is can be kind of a blanket statement. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. But what does it mean to you? So chronic pain traditionally is pain that lasts for three or more months or longer than expected healing time. So if you've had pain for three or more months, you would classify that pain as chronic pain. Acute pain is short-term pain. So that's any pain that you've had that, you know, like the pain that comes with breaking an ankle and then eventually it heals and fades. So it's a very clear identifiable source of the pain with acute pain. Usually, yes, but not always. Chronic pain is for sure more complicated in part because, again, pain isn't really taught in most medical schools and in fact, is not taught in any psychology programs that I know of. It's, I think it's taught in a handful of behavioral health psychology programs, but those are like sub-programs, and there's a couple of pain psychology sub-programs, but are really few and far between. So pain is not a thing that's taught very often. So chronic pain can be anywhere in the body. So it's pain lasting three or more months or beyond expected healing time. It can literally be anywhere. It can be in your jaw. It can be in your back. It can be in your foot. It can be your head headaches. It can be any part of your body. Yeah, and I think the thing that makes it so hard to treat oftentimes is that there is no clear source for it or like reason why it's extending so long. Would you agree with that? I would, and I want to tell you a little bit about that if that's okay. No, please do. It's really easy to believe that pain lives exclusively in the body. So for what I mean by that is it's very easy to believe that when your back hurts, it means there's something wrong with your back and that's where the pain lives. But neuroscience tells us that that isn't actually accurate and that the experience of pain is constructed by the brain. And by that, I do not mean that pain is all in your head, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. Pain is, if you feel pain, your pain is real, period, end of sentence. No more to say about that. However, there is a condition known as phantom limb pain And phantom limb pain is when an accident survivor loses a limb and they continue to feel excruciating pain in the missing body part. And if pain lived exclusively in the body, that would mean that no limb should mean no pain, right? That's wild to me. I know. And so what we learned from that, because science is always trying to, you know, collect more information and be more accurate, what we learned was that that means that pain must be constructed elsewhere. And what we now know is that pain is constructed by the brain and lots of different parts of the brain also. It's not just like one single pain center in the brain. There's lots of parts of the brain that produce pain. And I'm going to tell you three of them in particular that I think are particularly interesting that I think everyone should know about because we all have pain. It's part of the human experience. No one's ever told this to us before and it's not fair. educate us. So three parts, there's lots of parts of the brain that produce pain, by the way, but three in particular I want to tell you about. One is your cerebral cortex. And that's the part of your brain responsible for thoughts. Second part of the brain is your prefrontal cortex. And that's the frontmost part of your brain. And that's responsible for attentional processes or what you're focusing on. And the third part of your brain is your limbic system. And this one just always blows my mind. Your limbic system is literally your emotion center. So 100% of those signals are filtering through your brain's emotion center before you have the experience of pain. That's how pain works. So pain is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. Pain is never just physical, ever. It's always emotional also. And it's never exclusively in your body. 
So the pain you're feeling in your back is filtering through all these parts of your brain before you have the experience of pain. So how you're doing emotionally, if you're panicking or you're anxious or you're stressed out or you're depressed or you're living through a traumatic experience, which I think is what's happening right now, that's going to amplify the pain you feel in your body. Yo, isn't that cool? I'm like trying to wrap my mind around it. I feel like that's, it should be more obvious, but it's not. I know. It should be also taught to us. So that's part of the reason my cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be so effective for pain is that it targets all the things. It's targeting, you know, your behaviors and what you're focusing on and your attentional processes. And it's focusing on the things you're thinking and the things you're telling yourself. And it's focusing on also your body and your emotions and how you're taking care of them. Is there a reason why it hasn't been linked more often, like the emotional and the physical pain? Oh, you're going to get me to disclose my conspiracy theory. Here it is. Here's my (laughs) conspiracy theory. Um, It's not really a conspiracy theory. It's more about marketing and money at the end of the day. So when I went into pain, my goal was to help people and also to educate. I think those things are really important. Totally. But there are a lot of people who are in the business of pain because it's very lucrative. Because when people are in pain, they will pay any amount of money to not be in pain anymore. Um, And big pharma has billions of dollars to throw at this problem and convince everybody that pain is a purely biomedical problem that requires a biomedical solution like a pill or a procedure. And if you buy that, if you agree with that or you believe that, then you're just going to keep buying pills for your pain and you're just going to keep getting surgeries for your pain and, and you'll never address the bigger picture. Yeah, I know a lot of people like that, you know, older relatives in particular, I'm thinking of that have had multiple surgeries for, you know, their back, for instance, and it seems like the problem never gets better. Now, you know that pain is not a thing that lives exclusively in the body. It also lives in the brain and you have to treat all the things for pain to go away. So, you know, by the way, and I'm not saying that, you know, procedures can't help pain. Of course course. they can. Of course they can. I would never say that. But for chronic long-term pain, it's very important to target psychosocial functioning as well. So the bio is not sufficient. It has to be all the things together. It's like you were saying, pain doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. And so what we say about pain, we say it's a biopsychosocial problem that requires a biopsychosocial solution. Meaning, yes, there are biological components. There's also cognitive and emotional and behavioral components. That's under the psych umbrella. And there's sociological components of it also. There's what's happening with your family, what's happening, like socioeconomic status matters, culture and religion matter, social media affects pain. I mean, just everything else, your environment, your context. Exactly. It's kind of overwhelming when you think about it like that. Like, what do you choose to zero in on? You know, it's, it must be a process of trial and error. I feel sometimes like my job should be renamed and I should be called a private detective because I feel <laughs> I feel like what I'm really doing when I sit down with a client for the first time is like, what's going on in your life? Like, what are the things that are happening that we think might be triggering or exacerbating or maintaining this chronic pain cycle? Because like you said, there's probably a lot of ingredients. Yeah. So I wrote this workbook. It's called the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. And um, there's an adult workbook coming out also very soon in October, which is called the Pain Management Workbook. And both of those, I ended up writing, I just like made up an activity and it's called Writing Your Pain Recipe. And writing your pain recipe is exactly what it sounds like. And the way I think of it is like, if you've ever made brownies, you know, you need to like get your measuring cups and have the right amount of certain ingredients and you have to put the oven at a certain temperature. And if you mess it up, you're not going to get good brownies, right? Like it's a particular recipe to get those brownies. 
but it's the same with high pain and it's the same with low pain. So there's a recipe for high pain days and there's a recipe for low pain days. I know that's true for me. So a high pain day is like reading the news, signing onto social media and like checking the Twitter feed and reading all that stuff and then like having the TV on and looking at the banner with all the like alarming statistics of like the number of cases and people dying and like lack of respirators. Just to clarify, when when you say high pain, are you talking about emotional pain or physical pain or both? What a good question. Can I address that in one moment? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. promise I will. So high pain day for me is social media plus banners on TV and watching the news plus staying inside all day, not getting fresh air, not getting sunlight, not going for a walk. Part of my high pain recipe would also be like socially cut off from people. So not having phone calls with friends and family, not having any sort of social engagement or communication. So not seeing people outside and having people smile at you if they're willing to do that. Or (laughs) another part of my pain, my high pain recipe would be like eating really badly, like eating potato chips for lunch and then like skipping a meal and then like sleeping really bad, like let it going to bed at three in the morning and, you know, just a really crappy sleep. So, So that would be my pain recipe. And my low pain recipe would be the opposite. My low pain recipe would be like being very mindful of eating three healthy meals a day even though I have cravings to eat just like chocolate for every meal, it would be turning off my TV mindfully and deciding to not check social media at all. And maybe just checking the news once a day, just once a day for 15 minutes, I'm going to check the headlines on whatever station and I'm going to turn it off. You know, I will schedule phone calls with people I love and zoom happy hours or whatever else I'm doing. I will go outside and I will go for an hour long walk in the sun. And I know for me that that will give me like a low pain day. So to answer your question, The question I get asked the most, I would say, as a pain psychologist is, do you treat physical pain or emotional pain? And now I just say yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So what did I mean? I, 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 I meant physical pain. Physical pain is never purely physical pain. It's not a thing. There's never just physical pain because all of it is filtering through your limbic system, right? So... Your emotional pain feeds your physical pain 100% of the time. So on days when I'm like activated and anxious and sad about the state of the world and feeling overwhelmed by all the things, my body feels worse. You said that, you know, there's no such thing as purely physical pain. Would you say the opposite is true as well? There's no such thing as purely emotional pain. Do you think it always manifests itself physically in some way? I've literally never tried to, I've never thought about that before. Um, Yes, I would say there's no such thing as purely. I don't think it's physically humanly possible for an emotion to occur without a physiological counterpart because what are emotions at the end of the day? At the end of the day, emotions are brain chemicals in your brain filtering in certain amounts and affecting your hormones in your body. So when you talk about happiness, that's serotonin levels and dopamine and hormones in your body. And same with when you say you're anxious, what is that? That's adrenaline and cortisol. Those are hormones in your bloodstream. And, you know, there's physiological components to every emotion. That's how you measure emotions in the brain. That's how neuroscience decides. So, no, I would say that emotions are always physical and physical pain is always emotional. I would say that for sure. That's a good way to say it. Do you struggle with pain yourself? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I was a kid who had stomach aches all the time and I didn't know that's because I was like stressed out and anxious about things. And that totally continues into adulthood, although I'm so much better at managing it because I know my pain recipe and I know, 
you know, so I had to give grand rounds this morning at UCSF Children's Hospital Oakland. And I was so nervous. And last night I was like, I have a stomach ache. And I knew exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. I knew the stomach ache didn't mean that I had like a stomach bug or that I was getting sick with something. And when I was a kid, I would have thought that like, oh, I'm getting sick. But I knew what it was. So I made myself some tea and I did some really nerdy CBT stuff where I talked to myself. I really actually did. And I was like, you've done this a million times. You know, this talk cold, you've literally, you could give it in your sleep and everything's going to be fine. Like, even if you mess up, it's not a big deal. Like nothing's going to happen. You well, know? it's one thing giving out advice to other people, but to yourself, it's, it's a different kind of discipline, I think. Yeah. And I called a friend but who said the same thing to me. She's a physician. And she was like, I'm, first of all, I'm going to be on the Zoom call tomorrow. Second of all, you've done this talk before, you know it cold, you know, so stuff like that. What's been helping you personally during this time? So full circle, back to that article I wrote. I wrote it because I needed to read it. I needed someone to say that to me. So I was like, I'm just going to sit down and say it to myself. So I made a list of things that I suspected might help. And I admittedly wasn't doing them at the time. But I am now because I feel like, you know, if I'm going to tell other people to do it, I surely have to do it myself. Yeah. And going back to the whole recipe thing, you know, you were writing your recipe for the pain you were experiencing at the time. What a good way of saying that. Yeah. And the recipe at the time that I was thinking of writing was like, how do I write a recipe to help people with the totally overwhelming and normal anxiety contagion we're all feeling in this it's, moment? It's of- new. Like a lot of, for many of us, this is the first thing of this scale we've experienced in our life. <laughs> it's our first, our first pandemic. <laughs> yeah. No one knows how to deal with it. Totally. It's true. So anyway, you wrote the article for yourself. <laughs> no, and also, I didn't really just write it for myself. As I mentioned at the beginning, I was seeing friends and family really melting down, and I was seeing that on social media, too. And back to your point about empathy, I definitely was feeling this overwhelming sense of empathy for everybody who's suffering so much. And I was like, I feel so helpless. What can I do? I love writing, so I think I'll just write. <laughs> so so I wrote this article, and I just came up with some tips. Um do you want me to go through the tips? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to link the article. I think people should read the article for sure, but it would be nice if you could just kind of go through them. So the first one that I, I've noticed for me, and I don't know if this is true for you, that how I'm doing on any given day is proportional to how much I'm checking the news, really. So if I've read, the, if I've consumed a lot of news that day, including social media, I feel like crap. Like I feel overwhelmed and scared and sad and nervous about the future. So the rule I've made for myself is to only check the news once a day. So I give myself 15 minutes and I sit down and I go straight to an actual news source or I'll check CDC, the CDC website, and I'll just get my updates. But I will not get it from Twitter and I will not get it from Facebook and I will not, you know, I mean, I hear those things, of course, because I'm interacting with friends and I, whatever, but that's not where I'm getting my news. So stop obsessively checking the news. I've done that checking sources, making sure you're not getting it from friends who are panicking because what I've also noticed is that people are sharing the most sensational stories. On the news, you'll see like this 29-year-old who just got married and got it and died. Like, but that isn't yeah. the norm. Well, they so still have I- to make money during this too. You know, they know that those are the stories that will spark the most results. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to remember, actually, is that those sensational stories we're seeing, the reason they're being highlighted is because they're very tragic and they're very sensational and they're going to get a lot of readers. It's much less exciting for us to sit down and read 100,000 people got it today or got better today. Yeah. 
And that's happening too, by the way. That is happening too, much less sensational. So that's an important thing for our brains to know too, is like what we're reading on the news is like the most dramatic story. And I should say, by the way, I know five people who have had it and gotten better. Five people, just to say, just to be one of the people who's like spreading that news. Third stuff, right, so I... I live in this space of chronic pain with the emotional and physical overlapping. So I'm chronically looking for effective and not annoying guided audio. So relaxation and mindfulness. So I've collected a bunch of them. So I stuck in a bunch of apps and websites that have great and relaxing guided audio. And I actually take this advice myself. I imagine that it's like taking medication, like rather yeah, than... it is. Right. Rather than popping a pill twice a day, I listen to a guided relaxation and it really helps me a lot. And a lot of companies right now are giving free plans away who they no- right. who would normally charge. Like right now during the pandemic, like I, I use one called Sanvelo. That's just an example, but they, they normally charge, but it's a free plan right now. And I think that's incredible. Do you like them? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of early to tell, but I like them so far. San Velo, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, it's less uh, videos and guided audio than um, they're very interactive. They ask you a lot of questions about themselves. They encourage you to track and write your thoughts and moods and whatever. So yeah, I, I like them so far. But it's, there's so many resources out there. And you do a really good job of listing some of those in your article, which you know people should check out after they listen awesome. to this. Yeah, I, but I'm glad you told me about that one. I'm always looking for new and better resources, you know. There's yeah, like you for said, sure. There's so many out there. So what's number four? Number four is try not to contribute to the panic. I was noticing that among my friend groups on Facebook, people were resharing the most horrifying sensational stories and like writing things in all caps and predicting doomsday. Like I have a dear friend who keeps saying, it's just going to keep getting worse. It's just gonna, like, what does that do to people? Nothing. Like. No, like if you care about your friends and family, don't contribute to anxiety contagion. Don't, don't. Like there's no point. Everyone's already freaking out. Everyone's terrified. There's no, it's not useful. It just isn't useful. So just to play the devil's advocate, what would you say to the realists out there who would argue that you're just pulling the wool over people's eyes by not sharing this stuff. Um, I would argue that I am not advocating for that at all. I'm advocating for people to go and get the news and know the facts and get right. them from rep- get the facts from reputable sources and to not be relying on their friends on Facebook to give them the news. I think that's a really bad way of getting the news to begin with. Again, and for I, those in the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, don't trust your friend Bob, who's like telling you that the end of the world is coming. Like, Bob doesn't actually know what he's talking about. The end of the world might be coming. That's true. But I'm going to go get that from like an actual news source. I don't yes. want to get it from Bob. <laughs> and also, like, I really, you pointed this out, that it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. Yeah. Literally, you can't avoid it. It's everywhere all the time. So if you actually want to be a good friend to your friends, be a source of calm and stability and support and don't contribute to the panic. Number five is maintain social relationships. I feel really strongly about this one. Um, Same. Yeah. Like the worst punishment you can give a human being. Do you know what it is? Isolation. Right. It's not prison. If you mess up in prison, you get put in solitary confinement. What does it say about human beings that the worst thing you can do for us is to put us in solitary confinement and cut us off from other human beings? We are social animals and we are biologically built to need each other, especially during a crisis. So um, it's very important to not isolate. And there are ways of maintaining social relationships. Like people are going on bike rides 
like however many yards apart, wearing masks, people are scheduling Zoom happy hours. And I love that. Yeah, and like Zoom dinners and people are calling each other more and FaceTiming more. And by the way, sending each other flowers is such a nice thing to do right now. It means so oh, much. I love that. Like when you get flowers at a time like this, you're like, oh my God, you feel so special. I've never gotten flowers in normal life. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, you should text a couple of friends and ask them to send each other flowers. You can do like a secret Santa of flower sending. It just feels oh my God. really nice. Let's start a trend. For real. Totally. My little sister, uh, she's 17 and she's hip to all the apps and whatever. She showed me this app called House Party. It's it's kind of like Zoom. You know, you video chat with multiple friends at once, but you can also play games. And I thought that was really cool. I had a little house party session before this with like, six friends or so. And it was it was like therapy. Exactly. House party. That's awesome. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, there are ways of maintaining and being social even right now. Oh, yeah, boy. And I mean, like I was saying, I, I, I think I was saying earlier, like the impulse can be to isolate even more right now. Like that's one of my reactions to stress, at least like I, I tend to isolate. So I have to work extra hard right now to force myself to be social. Yeah, yeah. I want to know which other are there others that you've been using or doing other other ways of being social? I mean, mostly just forcing myself to send the text and to start the conversation because I uh, I don't always initiate things, but I've been working extra hard to push myself out of my comfort zone and start the conversation. And it's always so rewarding when I do. Yeah. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Isolation right now is really, really no bueno. No good. Oh, totally. And back to that thing where physical and emotional overlap. When we are in isolation, a bunch of things happen. Serotonin, which is like your neurotransmitter that affects your mood, your happiness levels, it crashes. Dopamine levels crash. That's the neurotransmitter that gives us feelings of pleasure and reward. And you have a stress hormone in your body called cortisol and it spikes. It spikes. And cortisol is fascinating because it's, it not only is a stress hormone, but it suppresses your immune system. Interesting. I know. And the reason that's particularly fascinating is because who wants to be immunosuppressed right now? Exactly. Absolutely. Nobody. <laughs> you know, when we talk about medicine, like Nature is medicine and sunlight is medicine and being social is medicine. There's lots totally. of different types of medicine that we all need. That's right fascinating. Now. To me too. Uh, I've been trying to establish a daily schedule every day. So I think right now, as you mentioned, all of us are off of our routines. Yeah. Completely off of our routine. I never thought I would miss going to work so much. Isn't it weird? I know. Or just like being able to go outside and do like normal errands. Like I like miss just doing like going to the dry cleaner, just like basic dumb stuff. I yeah, the first say. thing I'm going to do when this is over is go to a thrift store. Oh, that, exactly. <laughs> right. I know. Normalcy. So I'm trying to make a daily schedule for myself. I'm trying to set an alarm every morning because I, a couple days, this is not normally me, but for a, a couple days in the last few weeks, I've not wanted to get out of bed. I'm like, mm. I don't even want, I don't even want to. Like the news is bad. Everything feels like terrible and miserable. It's been raining here in Oakland. I'm like, why? Why should I even get out of bed? I don't even want to. Yeah. <laughs> so, so establishing a schedule, setting your alarm, getting out of bed, changing out of your pajamas yes. is so important. It's so important. It like switches your brain from like sleepy bed mode to like a different a different mode. Literally, it's like changing the channel on the TV. Totally. It's so important. So I have like bedtime sweats and I have daytime <laughs> sweats. Yes. <laughs> and that's okay. Totally okay. You can have daytime sweats. Just change out of your pajamas. Change yeah, you out can of have a pair of different sweats for every day of the week. A hundred percent, girl. Totally. You can never have too many sweats. Agree. Totally agree. 
bedtime leggings and daytime leggings. Doesn't yes. matter as long as you're changing them. Um, so that's part of my schedule and my daily routine. And I do the thing where I try and go for a walk or a run every day. And I eat my three meals and I have my work when I have to get work done. And then I have my hangout time where I'm watching TV or yeah. talking to friends or, you know. And I found it really detrimental to try to multitask. Like one of the temptations when you're, for instance, working from home is, oh, you know, who's to stop me if I want to watch my TV show while I'm working from home? But that it's it's not only impossible, but I would say it's really detrimental to your mental health. I agree. I yeah, agree it's better you. to have like set times to do each. Right. And especially since all of our brains right now are on overload anyway. It's yeah. just like, yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I'm trying to do is separate my workspace from my living space. So luckily, before the pandemic started, I ordered myself a little writing desk. And I have a little writing desk that faces the windows. And it's separate from all of my other, like, I don't do anything else at this desk other than work. Nice. And so what the reason that's helpful for me is that this is a designated workspace. And when work is done, I get up and I leave quote unquote work and I go back to the rest of my life, you know, so I have yeah. meals in a different space and I hang out and, you know, quote unquote socialize on the phone and on Zoom in a different space. And, you know, I'm trying to compartmentalize yeah because otherwise i feel like you start feeling claustrophobic like if you sit in the same place on the couch all day you're gonna go crazy you're, oh yeah you're, yeah you're gonna feel trapped and it's just no good so it's really good to have different things in different places and don't do any of it in your bed if you work yes and don't do any of it in your bed if you do you're gonna mess up your sleep schedule something awful i was literally of- just about to say that because i live in a micro studio and uh, I don't have a lot of options for compartmentalizing my life, but that's yeah. my, one of my hard and fast rules is that I don't do work in my bed. That's very smart. Well, if you can get outside and do something outside, even if you like put down a blanket somewhere outside, who cares, or drag like a camping chair outside, that's even better, you know, yeah. if you can get outside for sure. Um, I'm trying to leave the house every day. That's a thing I'm trying to do. And of course, we have to be careful with that and wear masks and I don't want to be irresponsible, but right. We need sunlight and we need fresh air to feel stable and sane. And I actually think that's very important. So you can stand in the sun for 10 minutes. You can go for a socially distanced walk with neighbors. You can water your garden. You can bring your dog to a park. Just you need to get, I just think, leaving the house. Yeah, turn important. turn off your headphones and open a window at least. You know, listen Abru- to the sounds totally. of nature. Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually the next one. The next one is get out into nature. So there's an app called Rain Rain that I happen to really love, and right now it's free. I hope it's I hope it's still Rain free. Rain Rain Rain. Yes, Rain nice. Rain. It's one of my favorites, and it's just a whole bunch of nature sounds, a lot of rain sounds, but also cats purring. Oh my and, god! All right, I'm sold. Oh, totally. And a dog snoring. It's a Shih Tzu snoring. <gasps> yes, it's the funniest thing you've ever heard. I'll play it for you if you'd like. Oh my god! It. Yes, we'll we'll broadcast it. That's all you guys are going to hear for an hour. It's just yeah. dog snoring. Oh no, it's New delightful. Plan. You don't even know. It's like absolutely wonderful. But that's that's if you have to stay inside or if it's raining out or it's too cold to go outside. But in the absence of that, I think it's very important right now in particular to get out into nature. And there are remote places that you can go for a walk where you're not near other people. I think it's critically important to see trees and birds and butter. I'm not joking. And cloud. It reminds you that the world is still going. Mm -hmm. Things are still happening. Nature is carrying on. Like, there's a bigger perspective. It just feels like everything's ending. But, like, it, when you go out into nature, you're reminded that it, it's not all ending. That's it's such not. a good point. Yeah. It's so helpful. Um, I really want to find the Shih Tzu snoring for you. Just <laughs> play it. Yes. Would you be able to hear it if I played it? I think so, yeah. 
And if not, I can always put it in after. <gasps> Could you hear that? Yes. Oh, no. my God. Play oh, it wait again. Wait for it. <laughs> oh, my God. I love Come it. On. You heard it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Oh, that's magical. Magical. So, <laughs> totally. Relaxation strategies abound. So what else was okay. on your list? So get out in nature. By the, by the by, I should disclose that I have had uh, a running loop of um, – there are nature cams out there. So there's um, like a peregrine falcon pair, a romantic couple, peregrine falcons, and they've laid four eggs. And I watch them on a video all the time. They keep me company. It's delightful. It's very oh, relaxing. Oh, you mean like uh, like uh, websites where you can go to and there's just a constant stream of it's video. It's a live like, cam, yes. Live, live cam, yeah. Yep live streaming oh we should link some of those as well oh it's the they're, they're all of the links are in the article FYI. yes oh wonderful yeah. love it yep totally 10 is exercise our bodies need, need to move that's literally how we're built if you don't exercise all the brain chemicals that make you feel stable and sane will crash that's my pitch the end well go yeah even if it's just you know going and standing on your porch you know like for jason well in his case, I wouldn't call that exercise. In his well, case, yeah. I would say, like, then you have to do push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks, but you have to move your body and you have to get out of breath. Very, very important. What Super was important. something you recommended for him or to anyone who's just starting out with exercise? Like, what's walking. something? Walking. Walking. Totally. Or, like, easy exercises at home. Like, people do leg lifts or push-ups or sit-ups, you know, and there's videos and stuff. Oh, my God. There's use. videos for everything. YouTube is your best friend right now. For real. Number 11 is distract, soothe, and stay busy. There's lots of ways to distract and soothe, and I like sort of categorizing stuff because it helps me. So there's physical activities like building things and drawing things and writing and baking and exercising. There's cognitive activities to engage your mind, so crossword puzzles and books and movies, Podcasts. board games, podcasts, <laughs> and sensations. Sensations can be distracting too, so take a bath, drink a mug of hot tea, eat a favorite meal, listen to soothing music, stuff like that. There's lots of different ways to distract and soothe. Um, I think everyone should get support right now. So um, I actually feel really strongly about that. And literally, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's terrifying for everybody. And I think all of us deserve support, especially if you've been struggling with stuff before. And there's a lot of therapists available. A lot of therapists have sliding scales, meaning they're willing to knock some money off of their fee to make it more affordable for you. And you know, all therapists have moved their practices online and a lot of us have like extra spots and stuff. So yeah, that was actually one of the things on my list I have is um, I know a lot of people, including myself, are kind of nervous about the prospect of virtual therapy. Um, but I've also been noticing an uptick in people who are doing it, which is really encouraging. So yep. like, do you have any tips for people who are might still have that fear of doing it or like tips for getting kind of preparing for it? Um, yes. If you tell me more about the fear, what would the fear be? Um, just nervous about being on camera, for instance, or, you know, technical difficulties. So like the thought that like, it might get interrupted because technical difficulties or like, I'll have to see my face on camera sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I also hate teletherapy. I think it's very important right now because otherwise we've got nothing. Yeah. But I do not like being on video with my patients. I think it's weird and it's definitely not ideal. But no. you know, in the absence of traditional therapy, I think it's it's a really useful tool. A hundred percent agree. Totally. 
So there's a couple of different tricks that I've been using with some of my patients. One is on Zoom. It depends on what platform you use, I suppose. If, if it makes you nervous to be in like on like a Zoom, there's like a way that you can hide your screen and just see the person who you're talking to. You can also ask your provider if you could just do audio and not video. Some um, people even text. They do like text sessions or I know there's true. apps at least. I, I don't yeah. know how successful those are, but. I do not love those. I just feel like the more information we have about each other, the better. And by that, I mean, as a therapist, I body language is so important and facial expression is so important and tone of voice is so important and yeah. all of that. Me personally, I'm terrible at like interpreting and un- really understanding a text. Like a text is just words. It means nothing to me. So the more information I have, the better. So phone is definitely better than text. And I find video even better than phone, even though I hate it. Um, mm-hmm. And the nervousness about being on video, I super understand that too. I find that I'm most nervous about seeing myself, but you can hide yourself on most of these apps. Um, and also I remind myself that like, no one cares as much as I do. Like no it's one actually so cares. Yeah. Like no one cares. Like, like my patients are watching me and they, they, they don't care. They don't care what I look like. They don't care if I'm having a bad hair day. Everyone's watching care. themselves. Care. Exactly. Everyone's watching themselves. They just don't care. Nobody yeah. cares. So it's the, it helps me to remind myself of that too. Like they're not looking and they don't care. Yeah. So there's a lot of therapists out there. I happen to really think cognitive behavioral therapy is a particularly good tool for dealing with anxiety and stress. And I say that because research supports that, um, that a lot of talk therapy is not particularly helpful for anxiety and depression and doesn't yeah. do a lot, but CBT has a lot of evidence behind it. And there's a lot of CBT therapists who are online right now and have openings. So I hope that that's something that folks will, will consider. And that's what's beautiful about this time is that people are adapting and changing the way they do their business. And um, yep. yeah, I think that's that's one positive thing. Totally. Yeah, so that's the general gist and the articles on psychology today. And you're welcome to check it out, of course. Um, Wait, you forgot the final point, my favorite. Oh, did I? Oh, God, how did I forget that one? So I feel sort of silly about writing this one now, but thir- number 13 is whiskey. <laughs> uh, and the reason I the reason I wrote that one is I am not someone who drinks very much. I've never really liked substances. I know that makes me sound weird. I just I don't like very much being in an altered state. I just don't really love it that much. That said, I have rediscovered whiskey since the pandemic started. (laughs) And I (laughs) I love that because, I mean, I've told you this before. It kind of makes you seem more human to me. Like, you know, even therapists are, you know, drinking right now. It's normal. (laughs) Yeah, even therapists are drinking right now. So, so, but I don't want to sound like somebody who's being insensitive because substance use, of course, is really high, especially when people are anxious. And I am not trying to suggest that substances are the way to cope with anxiety or stress for sure not and a couple therapists called me out on that and they were like that's irresponsible and I was like no listen like I my job is not to police people and I respect readers enough to believe that they know their own bodies and they know what they can tolerate and not tolerate so for me it's been really nice to occasionally have a glass of whiskey like that actually yeah. is helpful and a I mean lot. I'm sober but for me what I got out of that point was treat yourself yeah sure that too you know, like, it's okay to indulge right now. Like, yeah. We need it more than ever, I would argue. I feel that way about ice cream, I should say. Yes, ice cream. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like it can be more addictive than alcohol, personally. No, you're right. I agree with you. I totally agree. But, but perhaps less dangerous, but I guess it depends, of course. It, it, depends. it depends. It totally depends. Yeah, so... 
But yeah, we'll we'll definitely link your article. Everyone should read it. You list a ton of resources. Like I found it really helpful. I'm so glad. That makes me so happy because it makes me feel like, you know, I don't know about you, but I feel very paralyzed right now. I feel like there's all these people who need help and I'm not able to do a lot. So I'm totally. I'm glad it was useful to you because that makes me feel useful. Yes, you are useful. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, Thank I'm you validating you right now. And you're useful too. You're spreading the good word and helping people feel calm in a time of panic thanks I hope so I mean it's been really this podcast has been really helpful for me like I'm unemployed right now and this is literally like the only thing getting me up and going some days so but what other are there any other ways that people can find you or plug all your stuff sure yeah Um, I'm not a great plugger but I am on social media so I'm on Twitter and my handle is at Dr. Zoffness so it's just dr z as in zebra O-F-F as in Frank, N as in Norman, E-S-S as in Sam, Dr. Softness. I mentioned I have a book out. It's the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. And a second book called The Pain Management Workbook, which is coming out in October. And I just saw the cover for it. And it looks so cool. And I'm so excited. Oh, that's so exciting. I know. It really is. And of course, the Psychology Today column. There's new articles coming out regularly. Oh, um, yeah. We, you mentioned that and we completely breezed past it. But um, what, what's the column called? The column is called Pain Explained. If you Google my name and you Google Psychology Today, it will pop right up. Um, There's a lot of information about pain. And as long as you don't mind some nerdy pain science, it's all there. Um, I will probably write another article about the pandemic and anxiety and the thoughts in our head, probably just because it seems so relevant right now. But who knows? We'll be on the lookout Uh, for that for sure. Yeah. I'm a person who really likes being around other people and hearing from other people. So you're welcome to reach out to me. I'm also on Instagram. I think my handle is the real docs off. All right. Thank you so much for doing this again. This has been the fastest like hour and 20 minutes ever since I started (laughs) the podcast. Like I could listen to you talk forever. Um, Do you have any final thoughts, advice before we end this? Yeah, here it is. Ready? You have to tell yourself that everything's going to be okay. You have to. You have to. Just keep telling yourself it's going to be okay. You have self-talk. Very important right now. It's very easy to tell yourself that it's not going to be okay and we're all going to die. Don't do it. Don't do it. Tell yourself it's going to be okay over and over as many times as you need to. Stroke your arms if you have to. Just keep saying it. doesn't matter. Do it in the hot shower. Do it when you're walking on the street. Tell your friends it's going to be okay. Just tell everyone it's going to be okay. You have to. It's a survival strategy. Just do it. That's my recommendation. All right. You heard the professional. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Rachel. This was great. And I hope you have a great rest of your evening. You too, girl. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pickles and Vodka. If you could relate to anything we talked about, you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. I'm always looking for people to talk about their mental health with. So if you have a topic that you feel like you could bitch and moan about for an hour, please don't hesitate to reach out and we will get the ball rolling. Thanks again for listening and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.